Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and I don't give a fuck how this podcast turns out, as long as the effects are cool. Yeah, well, you're going to be disappointed because those effects were not cool at all. <laughs> it's just me moving my jazz hands around and sticking my tongue out making sounds. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what we got here on Awesome Movie Year with our really big special effects budget. <laughs> so. I guess we'll have to stick to trying to put out good content then? I, we'll, we'll try. We'll see if we can manage that. But <laughs> what is the content in this episode? Well, it is October. And as we mentioned at the end of our recent 1992 season, as a holiday celebration kind of thing, which we've done before, in between seasons, we are doing a few episodes looking at Halloween-themed movies, horror-adjacent films, things like that. And so we are starting that off by continuing with 1992. Why not? We love 1992. Listeners seem to be really into films from 1992, so we thought, let's keep this going one more time. So to kick off our little Halloween mini marathon, we are talking about Robert Zemeckis' film Death Becomes Her from 1992 with special effects slightly more sophisticated than what Jason just demonstrated. The effects are good, but the movie is not. So there's Jason's take on Death Becomes Her. <laughs> Getting although, that out of the way. <laughs> although one of the reasons, as we were discussing what Halloween related films we would want to talk about in this uh, little mini marathon thing. One of the reasons that we picked this, not only just because it was from 1992, was because Dave, our producer, said that he might have picked this as his 1992 pick uh, instead of Peter Jackson's Dead Alive. So Dave, obviously a fan of this film. So you guys can fight. Or maybe he was back in the day. I don't know if he still is now. But um, I have a question. Has this been one of those like uh, film Twitter reassessed films that we keep hearing about so much where they're like, hey, remember when everyone in the world said this sucked? Well, I'm on Twitter and I say it doesn't suck. And then someone else is like, yeah, I live in my mom's basement and I say it doesn't suck, too. Now it's been fully reassessed. I mean, there's definitely defenders of it. I don't know about on Twitter or if there's any kind of movement to acclaim this film. But certainly if you go on Letterboxd, there's a, a vast number of positive reviews from people that that seem to outnumber the negative reviews so maybe so it's it's i don't think this is a movie that has some sort of big movement to uh, sort of praise its brilliance like the middle three star wars movies have something like that yeah (laughs) but but there's people there's people who love this movie and um there were people who loved it at the time i mean critically it was not beloved i guess but it was a very successful film it grossed 149 million dollars on its budget of 55 million which was a high budget but still you know it managed to make a good profit there and it got mixed to negative reviews it did mainly get praise for its special effects i think i think even people who are fans of this film will single out the special effects as one of the major elements of why it's good. It did win the Oscar and the BAFTA for best visual effects. And outside of that, Meryl Streep was nominated for a Golden Globe for best actress, musical (laughs) or comedy. Although Meryl Streep can pretty much do anything and just get nominated for awards. Yeah, and I don't, I mean, she is the most nominated actress and actor, I guess, of all time. Actor is using the communal, Josh, here. Um, But I don't think she needed... uh, this Golden Globe nomination, granted, she has 31 others she could still rely on. She's won eight of them. I don't think this one called for it at all. I don't even think she would say it called for it. Do you think she nailed the comedy on this thing? No, I mean, I agree with you. And I, I think in general, maybe we'll talk more about this later. But I, I think in general, Meryl Streep is quite overrated. And I think she has this reputation as being like, the greatest actor of all time or one of the greatest of all time. And so when she does almost anything, she's just this default to be nominated for awards, even if she isn't 
going to win the award. They just kind of throw her in there. I feel like she has to do a really bad job in order to not get nominated for an award. And I don't think she's great in this. I'm not really a big fan of Meryl Streep as a comedic performer necessarily. But the Golden Globes also, as we've, I'm sure, discussed many times, are are often mainly just interested in getting famous people to show up and they throw out nominations for things that are kind of baffling. Yeah, but I am a fan of Meryl Streep and I think she deserves uh, a lot of the awards she gets, a lot of the recognition she gets. But I can't think of another actor, male or female, who gets nominations in such middling films as often as she does. Yeah, I think you're right. And and that's what I'm saying is that even if you do think she's great and that she's more often great than not great, she is just this monolith, this institution where it doesn't matter whether she's giving a particularly great performance for her or is in a particularly good movie. She just gets these nominations anyway. Hmm. Right. That's Jason's response to that. So this movie, it made a lot of money. It didn't necessarily get the greatest audience response. It got a B from CinemaScore, the audience polling service, which for CinemaScore, that's not great. That's from the people who were most excited to see it on opening night. And that's kind of a middling response. And critic-wise, yeah, it didn't do all that well. It got two thumbs down from Siskel and Ebert. And again, almost all the critics... Almost everyone who talks about this movie positively or negatively mentions the special effects and how good they are. Although a lot of critics I noticed mentioned that and then they say, and this is a common complaint, I think, in Robert Zemeckis films, that the effects overshadow anything else in the movie. That you're so, you as an audience member, as a viewer, and Zemeckis as a filmmaker are so fixated on the special effects that the story and the characters kind of get lost. And that was certainly something that Siskel and Ebert were talking about. And also the idea of the unlikability of all of these characters and the fact that they're very one dimensional and we're not going to care about what happens to them per se. They and a bunch of other critics, and I assume it's because this movie probably came out around the same time, compared this movie to The War of the Roses the Michael Douglas with Bruce Willis also. There you go. And that's a, not a special effects thing, but a very, very dark comedy about very unlikable people doing terrible things to each other. That was critically acclaimed. And Siskel and Ebert at least said these, this is a movie that was a movie with characters that felt like real people that you could care about. I kind of hate that movie. So I feel like the comparison is, is apt in a negative way. Was that a hit? Wars were the roses a hit. Yeah, that was a hit. I mean, that was I don't know the box office numbers, but I remember that was a pretty big movie and did critically well. It might have had some award nominations also. And again, I assume that came out probably a few months before this or maybe a year at most or whatever. It was still on people's minds when this movie came out. So that's why it ends. Up yeah. Occurring. Didn't they make a, an ill-fated sequel that they shouldn't have made? To the War of the Roses? I don't know. I don't remember that. I've seen the original, but I don't... A long time ago, I saw the original, but I don't recall there being a sequel. Well, since this isn't the War of the Roses podcast episode, although Dave, I think, is looking it up. Are you looking it up? Was there a sequel? There was one in the works in 2013. I don't think it ever came out. Uh, Don't worry. It'll be a 10-part limited series on your favorite streamer this (laughs) fall. Yeah, sadly. Sadly, it probably will be. But but Josh, I I know you're going to say it. I agree with so many of those statements. I was like, damn, I don't even know if I need to be on this episode anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I wanted to start off with some slightly more positive. Not every critic hated it. There there was it was mixed. There were some positive responses. Although this is kind of backhanded compliments here from Rita Kempley in the Washington Post who said, "Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn battle mother nature, the bitch who invented maturity in Death Becomes Her." A film about women by men, it is mostly an expensive way of warning boomer girls to act their age. This inventive black comedy ridicules two gorgeous 40-somethings in search of the ultimate wrinkle cream. More cosmetic than cosmic in its approach, it thrives on what it condemns and in its own weird, wonderfully savvy fashion, spanks the liposucked fannies of Hollywood. 
Robert Zemeckis, who took us back to the future thrice, directs this technically complicated, stylishly imaginative extravaganza with the sure hand of Dr. Menville before he got into Scotch. Dr. Menville being Bruce Willis's uh, plastic surgeon character. Yeah, who apparently changed professions in the middle of the film without any telling any of us. Like, he, he was a plastic surgeon, or was he a mortician? Then he was an undertaker. Like, they all lumped together. Who cares, Josh? So. Yeah, well, I think the implication there was that somewhere in the big time jumps that occur early in this film, that because of his drinking and his neuroticism and his marriage to Meryl Streep's character kind of breaking him, that he no longer was able to be a surgeon and had to be reduced to becoming a, a mortician. And, and yet, when they're talking about getting divorced and, you know, the Goldie Hawn character is telling him that, that he can't divorce Meryl Streep because it's California and he won't get to keep his own money, they make it seem like he's the rich one in that whole situation. So Right. And, but, and it's weird because both of them seem to have not done very well in those intervening years. There's references at one point later to Meryl Streep's character having not been in a movie for years, having not had a real role for years. And yet she says money is no object when she is offered this elixir of youth by Isabella Rossellini. So the finances of these characters, not exactly well, well defined. Well, Josh, if we're going to go down this road so early talking about things that don't make any fucking sense at all, um, <laughs> you know, the opening scene is, by the way, why are we putting Meryl Streep as the, I guess, I mean, she's uh, supposed, I guess I get it. You know, she's on Broadway and she's supposed to not be very good in a not be very good show, but Menville likes her. But Goldie Hawn's character takes uh, the Bruce Willis character. They're dating to see Meryl Streep in this show. They're engaged. Yet, right, right. And yet later we find out that the Meryl Streep character has stolen all these men from Goldie Hawn before. So if that was the case, wouldn't you be like, I don't want this person anywhere near my fiance? Yeah, I mean, she does say that this is like her final test. Like if you can pass this test, if you can resist Madeline Ashton, then we're meant to be together. So that's her rationale. It may make no sense, but she does have a reason that she states. It's not completely nowhere. Back to this review, who wrote it, Josh? This is Rita Kempley in the Washington Post. It sounded like she was trashing it and then she was like, you know all these bad things? I really like them. <laughs> yeah, I think she's I, I think she's mixed on it. And I think what she's saying is that it it's 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 stylish and it is fun, but maybe its message is not exactly fully realized. And I mean, what she's also saying here, and this comes up, I think, especially more so in modern takes on it, is that it, this is an extremely misogynistic film um, oh, yeah. that, that, is, that is about these hags who do terrible, terrible things in pursuit of their vanity or whatever, and this poor guy who has to put up with them. So I think that's kind of what she's getting at and that maybe she found it fun and stylish anyway, but that's, I think, what she's talking about. I think that's way too reductionist or reductress of a take on it to call it misogynistic because Menville's a crappy character. And then when we see this party where all these people have had to like fake their death, to have this fountain of youth, there are plenty of male stars there. Like it's, it's not misogynistic. It's anti-humanistic like it's saying that all people suck i mean i'm with it on all people sucking but i think <laughs> to say that sure there's some men with like no lines or maybe half a line in that party does menville? not does that but menville is i mean menville is terrible right you're right about that but he's terrible in a different way and i think this movie is being extremely harsh on the idea that women want to retain their looks and blaming it all on them as if there isn't some sort of societal reason why that would be the case and making these shrill, shrewish characters into sort of villains. Now, I, I don't think it's necessarily trying to send a message. I think it's just sort of the result of the story. And as Rita Kempley points out, the fact that it is written and directed by men, um, and so it's not as horrifically misogynistic as maybe some other things are, but I think it's one more thing to add to what this movie gets wrong. Yeah, I'm going to disagree with you on this whole societal aspect, though, because 
they don't do it for the fact that they want to stay in whatever aspect of society. They're taking this potion so they can get Menville, the shitty character who they need to have love them. Like, so it's another, another bullshit way of saying like, Hey ladies, you got to look like this so you can get this man. Who's just kind of, uh, kind of crappy too. I mean, I agree with you that it is absurd that they spend this entire movie fighting over this guy who seems like such a dud, but you can't discount. There's a whole element of Madeline Ashton being this actress who is aging and she's losing her career. That's what we start with, that her career is going down the toilet and she feels like it's, you know, looking at her wrinkles and she can't Mm. deal with it. So... Josh, I, I, how did that how did that play into the story after those first few scenes? Well, it didn't, and that is oh. part of the problem. But I think the idea that that doesn't exist in society is ridiculous. Of course that exists, and of course that's the context in which these people are living. I'm not saying it doesn't exist in society. I'm saying if that was part of the message of the movie, it got completely washed away. Yeah, I don't know if this, again, I don't know that it's a message that the movie is intending to send. I think it's just a result of what this movie attempts maybe poorly to do. Mm. So that's the end of my positive responses from critics. Um, (laughs) What a positive response it was. Here's all these crappy things. Now go have fun. Um, she wasn't the only one who liked it, but it was definitely more disliked by, by the majority of critics. So Kenneth Turan in the Los Angeles Times said, Death Becomes Her is a black comedy that is so pleased with its blackness, it frequently forgets to be funny. An elaborate piece of work with more than a little on its nasty mind, Death finally falls flatter than many a less ambitious film. Proof once again that just because an idea is audacious doesn't necessarily mean it's good. There is something regrettable in all this because by industry standards, this picture does take a few risks, and few enough pictures in today's Hollywood take any at all. But even though Death Becomes Her has no fear of being out on the edge, brazenness alone is no guarantee of success. Yeah, I think I think he's mistaken, though. Like, I agree with him on the result, but I don't agree with him on the journey that got him there. I don't think they failed because it was a brazen concept or because the... It was a black comedy. I think they failed to execute in all those aspects. We've seen plenty of good black comedies and brazen concepts work before. Yeah, I don't think he's saying that it's, it fails because it's audacious. I think what he's saying is that is exactly what you just said, that it is audacious and that's not enough, that it's executed poorly, that just because you have this out there idea and you're being bold doesn't mean you're actually going to make a good film. Well, and if you're saying he agrees with me, then I don't agree with me anymore. All right. <laughs> I don't even know who's agreeing with who at this point. But um, but no, I mean, I, I, I agree with that idea. And I think we talked about this a few times for different movies in our 1992 season where my response was like, I didn't really enjoy watching this movie, but I appreciate that somebody made it, that they put the effort into this film and that they followed through with this idea. And I think so too. I mean, the fact that this is, a major Hollywood film with a pretty large budget for its time with a bunch of huge stars in it. And it's this dark and this weird and off-putting and unpleasant. I appreciate that Zemeckis gave that a shot and it didn't work really, but good for him for trying. I don't because I, <laughs> I think just, I mean, and you know, it's one of the most successful screenwriters of all time, right? David Kep. So Right, who was who was early in that? He hadn't gotten to those huge successes yet. Okay, in his career. so it's him and Martin Donovan, another, I mean, more of a journeyman kind of filmmaker who wrote this script. So why I don't appreciate it is because I think they focused so much on the wrong things that it didn't matter. Like it wasn't like oh we ha-, like there was nothing to build on. It felt like hey we have an effect and that's the movie, you know? Yeah, I mean that is a problem that Zemeckis often has that he builds movies around the special effects. But I assume this started with a script and not with an idea for how to use groundbreaking special effects. And that that there is there is something there's something bold in that, even if it's even if it's misguided, even if it doesn't work out in the end. I'd rather see, you know, and I think I've said this multiple times, I'd rather see something like this that is a huge mess than but is bold than something that is just safe and boring. So 
I I will give it credit for that. Yeah, I just don't know if what you're saying is correct. I could easily be see them being like, "Hey, we figured out how to make computerized computerized skin look like real skin. Now let's write a movie for it." I think that happens all the time with movies. With I mean, but effects. but even if that is the case, the fact that this is the movie that they wrote for that and not something more crowd pleasing and more audience friendly, I I, I appreciate that. So, I mean, again, it had Meryl Streep, Goldie Hawn, and Bruce Willis all at like the height of their fame. And Zemeckis, I think they thought this was going to be extremely crowd-pleasing. And I guess it was because it was a huge hit. But it doesn't seem like the kind of movie that you watch and think, oh, this is mainstream friendly. This is something that is a four quadrant hit or whatever, <laughs> because it's so weird and off putting and dark. And it ends even uh, they change the ending to make it less happy. There is an alternate ending that is more in, like nice. No, so, I disagree with you there. The I, the original ending sounded way better to me than this one. And well, I don't whether. And I don't think it was less happy. I just think it was like uh, the audience didn't like the happiness of the first ending. So they gave them a more crowd pleasing ending for what they thought they wanted. Yeah, I mean, I think whether you think it's better or not, it was certainly it was darker. And that's the point is that they they were able to do that. All right. So finally, uh, more negativity from Owen Gleiberman in Entertainment Weekly, who said, as he proved in the great overlooked 1980 farce used cars, Zemeckis can do black comedy as well as anyone. Since then, however, something has happened to his filmmaking. It has become Spielbergized. Death Becomes Her takes its comic premise right to the edge. The characters turn into nip-and-tucked versions of the undead, but the film is too hyperactive to allow this blasphemy to bloom. Nearly every scene is slick and broad and triumphantly overstaged, like a production number. When the human cartoon special effects arrive, we react to the visual magic without necessarily feeling it's adding much to the satirical mood. It's just another selling point for the movie. Yeah, I mean, you've talked to you. I know just in conversations with you as a friend, Josh, Dave, sometimes Josh and I just talk as friends. We, That's nice. Yeah, we don't I include like you in those conversations. Dave. <laughs> mm -hmm. He's not there to produce those. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Dave, once I asked Dave, uh, like, hey, do you want to have this conversation with me and Josh? And he said, how much? And I was like, come on, Dave. <laughs> come on. But Josh, you've talked about it. You even alluded to it earlier that um, a lot of this Zemeckis stuff is just based on production or effect or like, hey, look, I found something cool I could do with technology. And he's lost like the heart of the stories. And that's why Back to the Future works. Because you care so much about the characters, because you care about the story. Right. And I think this is less so than maybe some later Zemeckis films, but you can certainly see here that even if, as we were just saying, even if it didn't start with, hey, we found some special effects, let's make a movie around it. If it started with the script, I can absolutely see that Zemeckis started with, hey, if I make this script, if I direct this script, I can use this special effects technique that is new and exciting and that his interest in it is technological. And I think that's just gotten worse and worse and worse as his career has gone on. And this is a mark where the movie doesn't work, but I feel like Zemeckis is, is trying at least, is caring a bit about the story here in, in, in more of a way than it feels like he does in some of these later films where they exist solely for the purpose of showcasing technology. But yeah, mm -hmm. this has been a, this is a problem with Zemeckis for, at this point, the majority of his career, because it's been the last 30 years or whatever, versus the first 10 years of his career where he was more story focused. Oh, Bob, we got to have a <laughs> real talk with you. He seems to be doing all right for himself, though. Does he, Josh? So, Does he yeah. want to talk about the new Pinocchio? We'll talk about <laughs> the new Pinocchio later. Um, so, so Jason, clearly you hated this. Had you seen it before? I had never seen it before. I was excited. I wanted to know why Dave thought it was so good. Uh, I remember in the Dead Alive episode, Dave, you mentioned how um, memorable the poster was for Dead Alive or the box cover at the video store. This was another mm -hmm. one where you just remember it with the striking red gown and the head on backwards and the three of them together. So, I mean, it's Zemeckis. It's these three major actors. I know it has gotten a little more steam lately. So, like, I was excited to watch it. It just, like, 
infuriates me with how lazy they are with composing the characters in the script in this thing. Yeah, and I had a weird, I saw this in 92, probably in the theater. And I loved this movie when I first saw it. I remember this was, you know, if I made a list of my favorite movies of all time when I was like 13 or whatever, this was high up there. But I hadn't seen it since then. And I've certainly been down on Zemeckis, uh, not only his recent work, but if you ever listen to our Forrest Gump episode, which I really hate Forrest Gump. Um, so I was coming to this thinking, I don't know if this is going to hold up for me. And it really didn't. I didn't dislike it as much as Jason did. I, I did appreciate some of what it was trying to do, even if it didn't succeed as far as I was concerned. But it will no longer be on my list of my favorite movies of all time. <laughs> so <laughs> what a reassess. Uh, yeah, exactly. I actually went and looked because I have that list on Letterboxd. And when I initially posted it, it was just a translation of a list that I had written many, many, many years ago. And I've since made some small updates to it. But I wondered, I was like, is this still on there? And it wasn't. So if it had been, I would have had to remove it. Josh, out of, out of that list, is there like one that you just feel like you were like way off on? Um, I mean, I don't know necessarily, because like I said, it, either everything on that list is if it is something that I might be way off on, it's something that I haven't seen in decades. And so I can't really say for sure. There are things where I look at that and think, ah, if I watch that now, I don't know how much I would be into it, but um, I can't say for sure because I, I haven't watched it in so long. So mm -hmm. it sure, I'm surely if you, <laughs> if you ever went to my letterbox and looked at that, that list needs a really like top down full on reassessment at some point, but that's uh, a project for another day. I mean, people might do that, but they're probably spending so much time at Go for Jason on Leatherbox that they might not have time sure. to do that, Josh. Anyway, Dave, <laughs> you you love this movie, though. So wh what was your response? Did you see it in theaters? Did you see it with your parents? To be fair, I'm actually in the same boat as you, Josh. I love this movie. It was probably one of my all-time favorite movies when I was 13 or something like that. And I hadn't seen it since back then either. I just had fond memories of how great I thought this was and how funny I thought it was. It didn't all hold up the way that I remembered, but I think I, I certainly liked it more than either of you did. Uh, I still think there's plenty to like here, especially in the second half. Um, but. Ah, uh, don't yeesh me, Jason. You got it's you fun. got yeesh. The second half is terrible. <laughs> oh, see, I uh, would actually agree with Dave in that the second half is better when they finally just full on cartoon it, and it doesn't matter that right. you hate these people because they're just being bashed around the whole time. I guess at that point, I've just lost so much interest that it didn't matter to me. Yeah. All right. Well, Jason, do you want to pile any more hate on things from the the background of this film? Josh, uh, you know, I want to talk about that ending because we did talk about it. So two things. And I want to talk about Meryl Streep real, real fast because um, Meryl Streep said of this process um, where it's so effects based. And, you know, she said of this type of making this type of movie, my first, my last, my only. I think it's tedious. Whatever concentration you can apply to that kind of comedy is just shredded. You just stand there like a piece of machinery. They should get machinery to do it. I loved how it turned out. I question that. Uh, but it's not a fun to act to a lampstand. Pretend it's Goldie Hawn right here. Oh, uh, no, I'm sorry, Bob. She went off the mark by five centimeters, and now her head won't match the neck. It's like being at the dentist. I know that's a long quote, but I did think it was because we said, like, this was not a great comedic performance. And we have seen her do much better comedy, so I wanted to give her a little credit for you know, maybe that was some of the difficulty there. Yeah. And that's so much of what like any mainstream blockbuster type filmmaking is. I guess we're never going to see Meryl Streep in like a Marvel superhero movie if she doesn't want to do that sort of thing, which is fine. That's movies now. We probably. Yeah. Will. So. <laughs> so, Josh, you know, we had talked about the endings, the ending that we see. Spoiler alert. But you've already watched it because you're an awesome movie. Your listeners and you're loyal. And you know how we do's, baby. Um, is the uh, Goldie Hawn and Meryl Streep who are still, you know, falling apart, still obsessed with their looks, still fighting, and now are like these old hags, right? Uh, and just chirping at each other the whole time. They're at Ernest's funeral, but Ernest, uh, they sit in the back alone. Meanwhile, there's this whole gathering of family members and friends, and they talk about 
you know, the priest uh, says, uh, what a what a second half of the uh, life that Ernest had. He created all these children and grandchildren and learned to love. And that was his real legacy. Right. And then the uh, the two women, they get up, they go out, they fight and then they fall apart. At the end. Wah, wah. Literally, Ooh, they fall apart. What little flaccid ending. <laughs> I don't know what that is. Um, but the ending that it was supposed to be was uh, after Ernest flees the party. Um, we go to 37 years later and uh, Madeline and Helen are Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn characters are on vacation. They're fighting. They're probably doing the same thing, trying to touch up each other's makeup. And what do they see? They see Ernest and his new girlfriend, Tracy Ullman. And it's 27 years later. And they're living happily as a retired couple while... Madeline and Helen are still hating their eternal existence. I think that would have been a much better ending. I mean, I think the ultimate point is the same. The idea that Ernest found happiness and had a fulfilling life and they didn't and they're still stuck in the same place. So it's not all that different. But I do think the funeral makes it a little darker. And the fact that I don't know if the idea of them falling apart, the literal smashing of their bodies was part of that original ending or not. But to end the movie on those characters in that state is certainly a very, I mean, you could call it a wet noodle, but I feel like that's that's the point. Is this like, here's what you get. No redemption for anyone. So um, I, I don't know. I mean, by that point, either you like the movie or you don't. One of those endings isn't going to win you over if you haven't been enjoying the movie. But um, I could see that that ending where we see Ernest alive and happy is a bit more of an upbeat ending and they went for something darker. Mm. All right. Well, that's all I had for this, Josh. All right. Well, we'll come back and talk more of our general thoughts on Death Becomes Her. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this special Halloween episode, we are still in 1992. Much like the characters from Death Becomes Her, we are stuck in one spot in 1992 talking about Death Becomes Her. And Jason, you hated this. I, and I feel like you've spewed all of your vitriol here. Do you, do you have any other particular elements that, that bothered you that you want to point out? I got a whole list for you. No, no I just... Um, I just... I've made my points, Josh. I don't think I don't think any of these actors are at their best in this film. I think this is totally the wrong type of comedy for Bruce Willis. He's completely miscast in this thing. You know, that that Menville character is supposed to be such a pushover, not the guy who says yippee kaye motherfucker and then, you know, takes down the terrorists in Nakatomi Plaza. I know I think we've seen this when we've talked about Willis and like stuff like Pulp Fiction. You know, he can do comedy and he can do it well, but he needs to be more of that macho type. Right. So, you know, what I had read was this was originally going to be Kevin Klein, and that would have been a much better fit for this character. Yeah, I agree with you on Willis being so miscast and that this is not the kind of thing like he can even play a character who's a bit beaten down in Pulp Fiction, for example. That's a guy who's really been beaten down by life and is kind of meek and is an underdog. Um, but just the way that the, the, the nebbishy kind of elements of this, yeah, it does not it does not work for Bruce Willis at all. I think Kevin Klein would have been better. I kept thinking of Tony Shalhoub as I was watching this movie. I felt like he would have been great in that part. Um, maybe he wasn't famous enough at this point or ever, but he could have done a better <laughs> job of it. Um, but I agree with you. It's it's not a good part for Bruce Willis. It's not the right part for Bruce Willis. I think it's hard to conceive of, and you mentioned this too, the idea that these two women are really competing over this guy and maybe putting Bruce Willis in that part was some sort of concession to that. Like, okay, he's this weak nerd or whatever, and he's got this limp mustache and these glasses, but he's still Bruce Willis. We still know he's good looking under there somewhere. And yeah. that's, that's why they might, they might be competing for him. Well, and Kevin Klein is good looking too. He can sure, just play sure. that type differently. Right. And yeah. you know, the other names were like Jeff Bridges, who I think might have been too laid back for it, and Nick yeah. Nolte, who would have been totally wrong for it, right? Right, yeah. So. Both of those, I think, would have been poor choices. But but worse choices than Bruce Willis? 
Maybe. Right. And you were talking about Tony Shalhoub. I kept thinking of Gene Wilder and going back to our films that we've watched with him and the producers. And that's that type of nebbishy guy you need for this part. Right. Right. Um, right. But meanwhile, Josh, you're talking about like them fighting over him and that. And I just was like, what are they fighting over him and why are they fighting over him? And then we get this reveal like two thirds of the way into the movie where they finally have a conversation about it. And it's like, it was all this, like who fucking cares? Like it's such a lame reveal. And then they just make up from that lame reveal. Like, Oh, we were childhood rivals. Well, you said I was trash and you didn't invite me to your sleepover. Like fuck you screenwriters. Fuck you and your billion wow. dollars, David kept. Wow. So, no, I mean, in a, if I ever meet him, I'll, of course, just be like, hey, please like me, read my script. I won an award this summer. <laughs> but but you're missing the point, Josh. I just think it's all so wet noodle, lame. And like I said, the effects take the front seat and everything else takes a back seat. And I know for a fact, besides the miscasting of Bruce Willis, because I don't think Meryl Streep um, maybe was cast exactly correctly but maybe cast a little better and goldie hawn we know can do this type of comedy neither of them hit the mark on this thing and i leave that a lot to zemeckis too right right and zemeckis is not an actor's director certainly but these are all experienced actors who don't necessarily need that much direction but but you're right none nobody's giving their best performances or doing their best work or playing to their strengths in this film and maybe some of it goes to that quote you had from meryl streep that Goldie Hawn in particular, who has this great talent for comedy, this kind of very technical filmmaking doesn't allow any sort of wiggle room or whatever performance wise. And maybe she isn't able to work at her full capacity because of that. And you bring up a good point, because like, what is one of the things Goldie Hawn does so well? It's react, right? Seeing her react to things going on around her is some of her funniest stuff. And you know, here she's reacting to what a tennis ball or something like that. And it's just not as organic. You know who gave a good performance in this, Josh? Sidney Pollock as the doctor. <laughs> That's what I thought. I was like, yeah. he did a good job here. He's always a good, you know, when he's in stuff, but like he was my guy in this one. So yeah, Sidney Pollock who as the doctor who is so shaken by the fact that Meryl Streep is is dead and walking around that he himself dies, I think is what happens there. It was uh -huh. unclear to me, but suddenly he's lying there and they're trying to like revive him with a defibrillator or whatever and doesn't seem to be working. I, I so. mean, that's one of those like throwaways that don't work because they haven't established that tone, like kind of like when the nuns are floating down the hallway and everything. And it's like, okay, you just put in another effect for no reason. Yeah. So I do want to, however, we've talked about the special effects. But I want to praise these special effects because say what you will about Zemeckis and his obsession with technology, often what he's obsessed with is stuff that's really impressive. And I think that's the case here, that the, the CGI effects in this film were all essentially new. Um, a couple reviews compared it to Terminator 2, which I think had come out not that long before this and was also pioneering in these kinds of special effects. And I have to give it credit that not only are these special effects revolutionary for 1992, but I feel like they hold up pretty well. They yeah. all look good. Yeah, and in that last scene where I was talking about where they fall apart, they look great there too. Like the effects do look good. I think sometimes the sound design um, works for it. And sometimes it's a bit like hitting you over the head with like, hey, look at something wacky going on here, you know? So um, yeah, it just... Um, I don't know. Swing and a miss, bro. That's how I yeah. feel. But you guys liked it better than I am. I leave the floor to you to spill your pop propaganda. I mean, I didn't really care for it. But like I said, I, I sort of respected that it was going for all this craziness. I feel like Zemeckis is probably the wrong director to make a movie that's like crazy and dark and out there. And it's Tim Burton, right? This should have yeah, been Tim Burton. Tim Burton, or even Dave's beloved Peter Jackson, who is another director who gets very bogged down in technology, especially yeah. in his later films. But I feel like he has that sensibility that he could have done a better job with this. And yeah, so even that, where it's like, this is basically, and I think we said this about Dead Alive, this is basically like a live action Looney Tunes or something like that. Mm -hmm. Like that's the tone yeah. that this is aiming for. 
that it, it should aim for. I mean, Bruce Willis is giving this bug-eyed performance where he yells half his lines. Like, he's obviously acting in something like that. And of course, Robert Zemeckis literally made a cartoon. You know, he made Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which is full mm. of actual cartoon characters. So he has uh, experience with that kind of thing. But I think in a weird way, this movie doesn't go far enough. And in part, that may be because everything has to be so precise with the special effects. But I... I, I like this movie, I guess, almost partly for my memories of like, <laughs> what, what what was what was this warping me? How was this warping me when I was 12 years old <laughs> watching this for the first time uh, and loving it? And and partly because of the movie that I imagined that it could have been. Yeah, I mean, you do make uh, some good points. Like it could have gone farther. And like, that's why Dead Alive was worked was to me was because like from the beginning we got that right we're in like the first half hour of this is a different movie than the last hour of this right so it's just it just that didn't do it for me i agree with you the effects are good it should have gone farther out there like i had read one thing when like goldie hawn is in the you know um the the first act where it's like seven years later, seven years later, which could work, right? And she's in like um an institution, right? A mental institution or whatnot, because she's obsessed with Menville and obsessed with Madeline. And like uh it was shot like almost shot for shot, like one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Who's gonna get that? Why would we get that? And why does that make sense for this, right? No, that that whole sequence is terrible. And right. putting gold gold Goldie Hawn in the fat suit right. is just really hacky cheap offensive jokes about fat people and that's why i'm saying is that the movie is better in the second half when they finally get to isabella rossellini and she gives them the the potion and they become like gumby essentially <laughs> and it just goes crazy then it's like this is what this movie should be about it's not about like the the darkness of these women fighting with each other it's about like these undead people who can take a beating or whatever and keep bouncing back like bobbleheads or something. Well, I mean, we're talking about being miscast other than having, you know, stature of beauty and a foreign accent is, is Isabella Rossellini cast correctly as a comedian in this, like totally incorrect casting here. I'm going to disagree with you on that one because Isabella Rossellini is not meant to be a comedian in this film. That character is not meant to be funny and is meant to be this sort of alluring, mysterious presence. And that's exactly what Isabella Rossellini gives to the movie. So I, I think she's the only one in this movie who's perfectly cast. Okay, she has like three assistants named like Tom, Dick, and Harry. Is that supposed to be mysterious? It's supposed to be a joke that falls flat. And so I took it as yet another character that should have had comedy, especially when we see some of the people who have taken the potion and like there are some lines that could have been funny, like, ah, you can be in the spotlight for 10 years and then you have to stage your death or do this or that. That could have been played for comedy. I just don't think I think she, we've seen her do much better work, too. Well, sure, she's done much better work, but that doesn't mean that she's not right for this part. I think part of what is funny in that that in 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 that scene or those scenes that she's in and i think this is something that that actors talk about with comedy a lot is that you play it straight right the character doesn't think the situation is funny right yeah and so that's what she's doing she's giving all of her allure and her mysteriousness and the same thing that she would give to a dramatic film and that's why, in contrast with the assistants named Tom, Dick, and Harry or whatever, it should be funny. I'm not saying it is funny, but I think she's she does exactly what that part calls for. She shouldn't be wacky. She shouldn't be goofy. She definitely should be sultry, and she's delivering exactly what they want. I mean, I 100% agree you play the honesty of the scene, right? But And I think, obviously, the scenes let everybody down. But I do think like, you know, there was a, you could still be honest and and find another quirk to that character. So anyway, Dave, jump in and tell us why you're all wrong. Well, I'm not going to tell you that you're all wrong, because like I said, it doesn't all hold up. But the one thing I will say, though, I know sometimes claiming something is camp, you know, is kind of a way to ignore its flaws and whatnot. But this is pure camp, isn't it? Like, I mean, this could be on a list of some of the best camp movies, wouldn't it? I mean, certainly a lot of people view it that way. And I guess it's camp in the sense, I feel like there's two kinds of camp. It's not in the sense of like John Waters, who is another, I think, comparison point here where he knows what he's doing is ridiculous. And this is camp 
in the sort of Tommy Wiseau sense where Zemeckis <laughs> thinks this is brilliant, right? He doesn't think yeah. that he's doing something that's deserving of mockery. And that's why it's campy. So I, I, I guess, I mean, I, I, I allow a, only a little leeway for how entertaining something that is. And I think for it to really work that way, again, it needed to be more ridiculous. It needed to be more over the top. It needed to be more right. of a disaster in order for that to really drive the entertainment value of it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like Dave, you and I, we, how many times have we talked about wet, hot American summer, right? Like sure. that's how campy I want it to be. Yeah. And like I said, if the first half had uh, matched the energy of the second half, uh, I think this really could have been something special. But overall, I think it's still a fun watch. I, I don't think it's as bad as Jason's making it out to be, but I, I think definitely a lot of it kind of misses. I mean, I don't care about any of these characters at all. And that makes it tough to like, I can go in and dislike a character and find, you know, good things about a movie. But like, when I just don't care about them because they're just so, ugh, you know, it's like, whatever, get out of here. Leave me alone. Stupid. Yeah. Thing. I think you need to buy into the characters in some way, even if they are terrible people and they barely do seem like people at all. And their decisions don't really make sense in a, in a consistent way. And mm. I definitely think that that's part of the problem. And that's why the second half is better, because then it's just like, oh, they're Bugs Bunny. Like, who cares? You know, they're just doing craziness. And you I care about that. Bugs Bunny way more than I care about these people. But right. yeah. should we rate this thing, Josh? Yeah, let's do it. Jason's uh, Jason's over this film. And I, I, I don't necessarily. Blame Sorry, him. guys. No, I'm no, that's it. that's that's fine. We don't need to pile on any further. So it's like, I, you know, this is a Halloween episode. And, and what did we get in this trick or treat bag? A apple with a razor blade in it. Oh, man. <laughs> Well, Jason, do you want to rate this out of uh, five? I feel like this is one of these that yeah, you got to do horrible. Yeah, you know, five five peeling bits of skin or sure spinal twists or whatever you know. So, uh, all right, out of uh, five spinal twists, it gets two from me, Josh, and uh, and that's only because we're getting into the holiday season. (laughs) I yeah, I feel like that's a generous rating given how you've talked about this. Well, Um, you, you know, you're right. The effects are awesome. It's capably directed like in a technical sense so i'll give it two all right well i'm gonna go not that much higher and give it two and a half where again i'm respecting the effort even if the execution is faulty and it certainly ruined my childhood memories of of loving this for some reason so dave how would you rate it i'm going three uh it it's fun. Come on, guys. It's fun. Time. <laughs> I, I didn't I didn't have fun. That was what I expected. I thought at the very least, it'll be kind of fun because that was what I, you know, I enjoyed it back then. And I, I mostly just found it tedious. So no, no fun here on Awesome Movie Year. Mm. <laughs> ah. We'll come back and talk about the legacy of Death Becomes Her. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this special Halloween episode, we are talking about Robert Zemeckis' 1992 film, Death Becomes Her. And we've talked about Zemeckis before, a while ago, in one of our earliest episodes in our first season, we talked about Forrest Gump. And I'm sure we said some similar things, and we've been talking this this whole episode about Zemeckis' obsession with technology and how that's kind of overtaken his sensibilities as a storyteller. And I think that is just the arc of his career going forward from this. Um, he had, uh, this was the, you know, part of his huge blockbuster period. I mean, after this, he made Forrest Gump, he made Contact, he made Castaway, he made What Lies Beneath, which I remember quite liking, all of these big, big hits, and then shifted into this obsession with technology even more so he got really into the whole motion capture idea making the polar express and beowulf and a christmas carol which i think at least the polar express is like a huge hit and was a huge hit and has become this big perennial christmas movie which is terrible because it's such a bad horrifying looking movie (laughs) um i i do think he's attempted to get back to storytelling and drama a little bit in recent years like with uh flight with denzel washington and the walk with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, which also is very, very technologically focused, but I feel like because it's based on this true story, it has a better core of reality. 
And and Jason, you wanted to talk about Pinocchio, right? Yeah, it's me. I'm at the Geppetto. I'm on the two podcasts now. Uh, I uh, I haven't watched it, and the reason is, Josh, everyone, including you, just says what a horrible, horrible train wreck of a film it is. Yeah, it is bad. And although one thing that is not bad is that Tom Hanks does not do that terrible Geppetto accent that you just did. Tom Hanks seems like he barely showed up in this film and he's not doing any accent at all. But I guess that's better. And yeah, I mean, the the, the thing about Pinocchio that's so bad is that it's this like convergence of two terrible things. It's Zemeckis and his fixation on technology at the expense of storytelling and at the expense of what's right for the characters. And then it's this Disney live action remake stultifying thing where they just do, uh, you know, almost shot for shot versions of stuff and take all the whimsy out of it. And those things come together in this really quite terrible film. Yeah. Knock it off, Disney. Stop with that. You haven't uh, do that. Anyway, Josh, you know, uh, here's the thing. Zemeckis, uh, he did win the best picture and director award for Forrest Gump. We did talk about it in that first season, that movie coming up here, which goes over. It's like the people who have lived in one room over, you know, whether it's decades or centuries, I'm not sure. And then he's got one that I think he's going to have to focus the story on, unless it's a huge action movie, maybe. It's about King Kamehameha uh, from Hawaii, and it's a played by The Rock, of course. Uh, he's trying to unify all of Hawaii and things. So maybe oh. it, maybe it's an action thing. Maybe it's not. I don't know. So. Yeah, I mean, who knows? Hopefully those projects will come to fruition. Although I don't know if I feel that way. I feel like I don't trust him to do anything at this point. Um, but maybe the true story aspect, like I said, I felt like with The Walk, because there was that structure to it about uh, Philip Petit, the, the tightrope walker who walked across the World Trade Center, that he is forced to have characters and have story because they're real people who yeah. did real things. So maybe that that Hawaiian film with The Rock will work out that way. I didn't see The Walk, but Man on Wire, the documentary about Philippe Petit is, oh my God, maybe my all-time favorite documentary. That is an incredible film. And and it it's better than The Walk. And if you watch Man on Wire, you don't need to see The Walk. It doesn't add anything to it. But watch the fact that... The point of this Death Becomes Her podcast is to watch Man on Wire. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I will say, I The Walk, the one good thing, again, it was like technological. I saw it in IMAX and the recreation of The Walk itself and the way that he puts you in it and is, when you're watching it on this massive screen is effective. It, it's, it's scary to see and you really get the sense of how dangerous it was, which is, you know, not as much as in the documentary per se, but overall as a film, that documentary is better and it doesn't add any insight to the, to Philippe Petit as a person or to what he did to watch the walk. But, um, it's, I feel like I'm damning it with fame praise. Like it's the least terrible of Zemeckis' <laughs> recent film. Yeah, it probably go back to the early stuff, you know, from used cars to back to the future and stuff like that. Um, you know, I mentioned David, I cursed out David Kep in this film and this uh, podcast, but <laughs> David Kep, man, uh, I mean, one of the most successful screenwriters of all time. And I like him. I mean, he just did Kimmy. He wrote Kimmy this past year, which is at this point still on, was that nine, was that this year or last year, Josh? Yeah, it was 1992. 2022, or was it? Uh, yeah, or it's, 20, it's 2022. Yeah, yeah. It's, it has a chance to make my top 10 of the year. I think that's good. Um, he's writing the Green Hornet in Cato right now, which, of course, uh, Green Hornet is ripe for another try. And then he's writing Bride of Frankenstein. And then a movie, it's either a movie or a limited series called Aurora about a divorced mother who must now do everything she can to protect her teenager and estranged brother a wealthy Silicon Valley CEO who has built a luxurious bunker in the desert just for such a disaster. So like those all sound interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, they could be. And he's certainly still in demand. I mean, he did have this huge blockbuster period right after this. I mean, Jurassic Park and Mission Impossible and the later Indiana Jones films. I mean, he seems like this go to guy for big 
popcorn-y kinds of movies. And he's also been a director with a mixed track record. I like Premium Rush, his action movie with Joseph Gordon-Levitt as a bike messenger. But what's your deal with Joseph Gordon-Levitt today, bro? He's a good actor. Well, okay. (laughs) Oh, Japan. Oh, he plays Jiminy Cricket, right? I'm just saying he's a good actor. (laughs) He is so horrible in that Pinocchio movie. As that might be the worst performance he has ever given. Is his way misguided. Tom Hanks wisely is like, I'm not going to do the voice. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt is like, oh, I'm going to double down. I'm going to do twice as much voice to make up for Tom Hanks not doing it. It's so, so all right. Well, I, I don't know, man. Uh, you know, you're talking about that later Indiana Jones film. We all know how I feel about Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls on this podcast. Right. And I'm not, I'm not saying it's I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying that he is the guy for this kind of thing. Spider-Man, all of this stuff that if the studio is like, we need the reliable guy who can get our blockbuster script in in shape, we're going to call David Cap. Well, Josh, let's go to the reliable actresses here. Meryl Streep, as you said, always acclaimed. Uh, She has three Oscars uh, in uh, 21 nominations. That's amazing. So yeah, uh, best supporting actress for Kramer versus Kramer, which Josh refuses to watch. Best Actress for Sophie's Choice, which is constantly still referenced in pop culture. And uh, Best Actress as uh, Margaret Thatcher in The Iron Lady from about 10 years ago or 11 years ago. Which she did not deserve that award for that film, which is a bad movie and she's but, uh, not good in it. But I marked down two examples of her doing comedy better. Obviously, The Devil Wears Prada, where she just eats that scene. Uh, that whole part of is is great. And then I don't love that movie, but I think she's very good in it. And then. Defending Your Life, Albert Brooks. You got to watch that one. Yeah, I haven't seen that in a long time, but I think that was good. And that's a movie where, unlike, I mean, The Devil Wears Prada, like you said, she's eating up the scenery. She's playing this over-the-top character. She's clearly having a good time just going for it. And in Defending Your Life, she's a normal person. It's a, it's a, I mean, it's a sci-fi or fantasy thing in the afterlife, but it's about these two grounded people falling in love. So maybe that's the best sort of place to put her comedy wise, I I don't know. Well, I um, mean, you're talking about one of the great comedy writers in the history of cinema, there right? Too, I mean, right? and that helps, and that helps. You you don't you don't put David Kep on that list. Um, so. I, I her most recent Oscar nomination was for The Post, which which I thought she was quite good in. I, I that's a more supporting role, and I thought she was right in her. She was exactly right for that part, and she did it exactly the right way. Yeah, she's great, Josh. I don't care what you say. <laughs> Goldie Hawn also has a an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress in Cactus Flower, a film I've never seen. Have you? No, I don't think I've even heard of that film. Um, I've heard of it before, so I know more about movies than you do. Um, yeah. But lately we've seen her in The Christmas Chronicles, The Christmas Chronicles 2. Obviously, you go back, watch Wildcats, watch Private Benjamin, watch her 80s comedy stuff for to get that real feel. And in the 70s, she was doing a lot of um, you know, kind of mainstream comedy stuff. Josh, there is this Christmas movie she's doing coming up that I think has a chance to be a huge hit, but I really hate the title of it. It's called The Childhood History Plan, and it's three women are forced to spend Christmas together along with their children and grandchildren after the man they were all once married to drops dead in a New York City department store. And it's Goldie Hawn, Bette Midler, and Diane Keaton, the first wives club. I think that could be a huge hit, but I don't get the title. Yeah, I don't know. And it's weird because she's essentially retired. I mean, in in 2002, she retired and then she didn't do anything until she had this sort of brief comeback in 2017. And that was her first movie in 15 years when she did Snatched with Amy Schumer, which is not the comeback that maybe she was looking for. It's not a very good movie. And I know Jason hates Amy Schumer. Um, And then, like you said, other than that, all she's done is those Christmas Chronicles movies with Kurt Russell. And she's really just barely, at least in the first one, she's just in it for like one scene, I think. She's in it a lot in the second one. Yeah. But it's clearly something where she just, you know, she and Kurt Russell want to work together and they're having fun. But otherwise, she's essentially retired. So it'll be interesting to see if they go ahead with that uh, First Wives Club reunion film and how that turns out. Because, I mean, I think as we've talked about with like Gene Hackman, um, these people deserve to retire. 
you know, we may, we may as viewers think, oh, we miss their presence on screen, but someone who does that much great work, if they want to just kind of chill, then they should. I mean, Jane Fonda retired and then came back with Monster in Law, which was horrible, but has since then been on like quite a roll. So you never know, right? Also, right. I don't hate Amy Schumer. I liked her. You in just the, hate almost everything that Amy Schumer yes, does. Yes, I liked her in The Humans, right? She's good in that. I think she's a better dramatic actress than maybe a comedy actress. And uh, I thought her comedy, it's in print. I've reviewed her twice. The first time I gave her a very good review. And the second time I thought it was really lazy stuff. All right. Well, we don't need to go all into Amy Schumer, but I don't know if you've seen Snatched, but you would hate it. And it's also it's bad. Well, Josh, we have gone into Bruce Willis before, especially in 1994 with both North and Pulp Fiction. Since that time, we learned a lot about his health condition. And, you know, we were kind of saying, why are you making all these movies, Bruce Willis? Like, you know, you don't have to do this. And he's barely trying. So I think we've learned more. And um, since then, we would we would give ourselves a reassessment on uh, assessing what he was doing. Yeah, it's I mean, it was sad to watch those movies when you thought he was just going through the motions and not trying. And it's sad to watch those movies now, knowing that it's because he's struggling with health problems. Either way, those movies are terrible and I wish he had not made them. So that's it's it's still just a sad situation all around. Yeah, there's one coming out called Paradise City uh, where he stars with John Travolta. And Stephen Dorff and uh, Ryan Swan must carve his way through the Hawaiian crime world to wreak vengeance on the kingpin who murdered his father. Eh, maybe, uh, maybe has a chance. I, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know either. I mean, he's 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 officially retired. He's not making more movies, but he was so prolific for that period of time that there's still like four more coming out. And I think he's had like six movies released in 2022 already. And so that's one of them. And I, I imagine it'll be similar to all of these ones that came out in the last eight years or whatever it was since he started doing this stuff. So, uh, constantly and Travolta who doesn't have the medical excuse is just <laughs> lazy in all of these. He does a lot of these too, where he's just going through the motions or whatever, but it would be nice if that, if that is one of Bruce Willis's final movies, if that was a, a, a fun reunion for them, it's also directed by Chuck Russell, who we talked about as the director of the mask and directed Nightmare on Elm Street 3, and is a slightly higher caliber than the people who direct most of those straight-to-VOD Bruce Willis movies. So I don't have high hopes for it, but I feel like of all of those movies, it has the best chance of being slightly enjoyable. Josh and Dave, you get to pick one Bruce Willis film that's not Looper or Die Hard to recommend on this podcast. What is? What are you recommending? I recommend 12 Monkeys. 12 Monkeys is great. Um, for him, for Brad Pitt, for the, you know, great Terry Gilliam direction is a crazy sci-fi story. Um, I love that movie. So that based on La Jetée. Right, exactly. Um, so yeah, Dave, I'm going, I'm going unbreakable. Also great. Yeah. So great. Both on my list. Of course, uh, I would say I'd probably say Moonrise Kingdom of all of them. I think he's really good. And I love that, uh, Wes Anderson movie, but of course I have to recommend Bandits, which we covered in our Matchstick Men episode. <laughs> The movie that Jason absolutely remembers having seen. (laughs) That's for all you loyal listeners. That's a history. Oh, yeah. Everyone's going to get that. An awesome movie. Your callback to the 2003 season. Yeah. Good stuff. I got nothing else except that um, I did think, didn't Zemeckis um, direct some or produce Tales, uh, Tales from the Crypt, Josh? Yeah, I think he produced, he might have directed some episodes. And, and this, at least one review that I was looking at mentions that this comes off like a Tales from the Crypt episode that just kind of goes on for too long. And I agree. I feel like this might have worked better if it was like 25 minutes yes. long and it was a TV episode and just got right to the craziness within like three minutes or something and gave you craziness for 20 more minutes and then ended. They did say Probably. on set that Zemeckis was fond of saying, hold on to your butts, which kept wrote in as Samuel L. Jackson's uh, catchphrase. And that is a great legacy for this film because <laughs> that is go. like one of the all-time Jurassic great movie Park. lines that people still quote yeah. constantly. Yeah. Um, I did, I did want to mention Isabella Rossellini again because she is someone who could probably do anything. She's like this movie royalty and she consistently does weird, weird shit. Um, she's gotten a lot of attention recently for being in Marcel the Shell with Shoes On as the voice of the 
title character's grandmother, I guess. I assume another shell. I haven't That's seen exciting. it. exciting. I want to see but, that. But uh, people love that movie and, and they love her in it. So props to her for doing things. You know, she made that web or short form series green porno where she puts on weird costumes and enacts like animal sex and like i just love that that's what she does with her career so good for her yeah i like isabella rossellini i just not in this yeah we we know so jason hated this film Don't didn't like it, it but i'm still excited for halloween and thanksgiving and christmas and all the movies that encompass this season josh jason loves holiday movies i do i love the mm-hmm. concept of them i uh i don't love all the holiday movies as we all just right. found well, out yeah. we'll see what comes up later with our holiday movie episodes but that is death becomes her and that is this episode of awesome movie year you can check us out online and on social media yeah you guys are already looking at go for jason on letterbox so i don't need to mention that i'm still jason harris comedy or j harris comedy and all the socials also got those sweet new socials, the Trivia Party and Eat This Comedy on uh, Instagram. Josh, uh, my website, Go For Jason, got smacked in the head with a shovel, and that was all tipsy toopsy toopsa. <laughs> but we're, we're at awesomemovieyear.com, Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram, Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. I am at joshbellhateseverything.com, which is also not so great, not in good shape at the moment. Josh Bell hates everything on Facebook at Signal Bleed on Twitter and at Signal Bleed on Letterbox, which where you can <laughs> look at that old ass list of my favorite movies <laughs> and listen to our producer David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at Piecing Pod. And Jason, we're continuing to celebrate Halloween. So what are we talking about in our next episode? Josh. You know, it is the season of gift giving at this point, Candy and later presents. And we are giving a gift to all of our listeners who voted in our 1999 audience choice poll. The runner up for the teen comedy that year was Idle Hands. Of all the teen comedies that came out, so many of you wanted us to cover Idle Hands. So now that it's Halloween season, you get your Idle Hands episode. So tune in next time for Idle Hands. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.